Okay, as promised, we're going to talk about the hindrances tonight and some antidotes for dealing with them. So hopefully this will be helpful to you as the hindrances arise in your practice. As I've mentioned several times, the suttas instruct then that one enters and remains in the jhanas by being secluded from sense desires and unwholesome states of mind. Those words, secluded from sense desires and wholesome states of mind, are code for the hindrances. So one needs to be secluded from the hindrances. Now that doesn't mean you need to be out in a forest somewhere meditating. You just need to... If the hindrances are here, you need to be secluded from them here. So they just need to be at bay. You need to be secluded from them in your mind. And then, of course, they are sense desire, aversion. um, Those are kind of a pairing, sense desire, greed and aversion. And then the next two are sloth and torpor, and restlessness and remorse. Those are kind of a pairing of sloth and torpor, too little energy, restlessness and remorse, too much energy. And then the final one is just doubt. So I'm going to talk about each of them in turn, how to abandon them, even if only temporarily, just enough to get into the jhanas. Of course, permanent abandonment of the hindrances is awakening. So the first hindrance, sense desire, basically the wanting mind. It's when you experience something through one of the six sense doors, and you like it, and you want more of it, and you don't really want to share it. Okay, so when it's uh, the mind that's all caught up in sense desires, especially on the cushion, it's when you're indulging your internal dramas and stories. Or your thoughts turn to fantasizing about someone or something. And... These thoughts keep you from getting concentrated. So it's really not a hindrance if they're not keeping you from getting concentrated. They might come up, but you and you might notice them and let them go. Okay, then there's no problem. But if they're there and they're keeping you from getting concentrated, they're a hindrance. And now you've got to figure out what to do with them to temporarily abandon them so you can be secluded from them and get and remain in the jhanas. In the suttas, when the Buddha talks about the hindrances and how to deal with them, he uses a lot of similes. And uh, with regard to the hindrances, he has a simile, he has two similes for each one, but one of them is uh, remains constant, which is a looking mirror. And at the time of the Buddha, they didn't have mirrors as we know them today. 
they, they looked in bowls of water to see their reflection. So in the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the big Nikayas in the middle basket, the connected discourses, the Buddha said that being overcome with the hindrance of a wanting mind, which is sense desire, being overcome by it, that, that means you can't easily let it go. So being overcome with it in a way that is hindering you from getting into uh, access concentration, he says it's, look like, it's like looking into a bowl of water into which many beautiful dyes have been poured. But the, while these beautifully beautiful dyes have beautiful colors, they're very deep and very rich. Um, and they're beautiful to look into, but if you wanted to see your reflection in the water, you wouldn't be able to. In the same way, when our mind is possessed by sense desire, it may be somewhat pleasant, but it's a hindrance to what we want to do, which is to concentrate the mind. The Buddha also compared the wanting mind to being in debt. When we're in debt, we can't spend money on things we want to because we have to pay off our debt first. And we may have to postpone buying things we would really like to have, like a vacation uh, or the latest gadget. Uh, Or we can succumb to incurring even more debt to purchase those things, but then eventually that will catch up with us too and will be even more hamstrung. So in the same way, when we become indebted to our sense pleasures, our deepest aspirations get forsaken. Sense pleasures can lead to wanting even more sense pleasures, and like debt, it can spiral out of control. And we can have a really hard time of breaking the cycle. So the commentaries uh, list six things to do to abandon sense desire. And so I'll give these to you one at a time and offer them to you as antidotes for the hindrance of sense desire if it comes up during your meditations. The first thing that the commentaries say to do to abandon sense desire is to learn the sign of the unattractive, which is impermanence. A common object of sense desire, for instance, is lust. And the suttas recommend um, going to the charnel grounds to learn the sign of the unattractive with regard to bodies if the desire is lust. And today we might do that by imagining what a certain body might look like as it ages or becomes sick or even goes through the dying process. So that's the sign of the unattractive of the object of our sense desire, if it's a body. Um, Another unattractive sign 
is the nature of our desire itself. It's impermanent as well. We can watch desire arise for one thing, hang around for a little bit, and then be replaced completely with a desire for something else in the not-too-distant future, right? Our desires are coming and going all the time. In fact, it can be quite amusing and even sometimes painful once we begin seeing desires, endless search for more. All right, so that's the unattractive in the object of our sense desire, the unattractive in desire itself, because both are impermanent. And the third unattractive sign with regard to sense desire is the fleeting nature of our satisfaction upon realizing the object of our desire. Our sense of satisfaction is also impermanent. That's the unattractive nature of our satisfaction with the object once obtained. Sense desire arises from the misperception that its fulfillment will bring us happiness. And to make this point, Joseph Goldstein talks about Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina. And I love this analogy. Um, After, well, many of you probably read the book, Anna deserts her husband uh, and gave up her only child to have a love affair with Count Vronsky. Um, She was in a really loveless marriage with an older man who was a civil servant in the government in St. Petersburg. uh, But they had a son, and... Uh, The son was actually the love of her life before she met Count Vronsky. And it was really the only thing that she lived for was her son. But then she meets Count Vronsky, and they fall in love. And um, she begs her husband for a divorce, but at this time in St. Petersburg, women had no rights. And so, as the novel goes, he... um, would only give her a divorce if she abandoned her son. So she leaves her son with her husband to go to Count Vronsky. Well, for his part, Vronsky, he had been trying and trying and trying to get Anna to leave her husband, you know, under the circumstances with which she had to do it, which was to leave her son behind. She finally does it. But when she finally does it, and she is all his... This is what the narrator says. After she and Vronsky finally came together, Vronsky, in spite of the complete realization of what he had so long desired, he was not perfectly happy. Vronsky soon felt that the realization of his desires gave him no more than a grain of sand out of the mountain of happiness that he had expected. It showed him the mistake that men make in picturing to themselves happiness as the realization of their desires. That's kind of a 
tragic novel, but I think it perfectly illustrates the impermanent nature of our satisfaction with our desires once obtained. And by the way, that applies to women too, not just men. All right, so that's the first thing the commentary suggests that we do with desire is learn its unattractive nature, which means the impermanent nature of the object, the impermanent nature of desire itself, and the impermanent nature of our satisfaction with the object once obtained. There's five more things the commentaries recommend to do with sense desire as a hindrance. The first one is to learn the unattractive. The second one is to devote oneself to meditating on the sign of the unattractive. To devote oneself to meditating on the fact that all three of those things I just talked about, the object, desire itself, and satisfaction are impermanent. So you learn their impermanence is the first one, and then the second one is you devote yourself to meditating on their impermanence. So you really begin to have a visceral uh, uh, understanding and and belief in the in the unattractive nature of all these things. And hopefully that will seclude you from the hindrance of sense desire. But there's more antidotes if it in case it doesn't. The third thing suggested in the commentaries is to guard the sense doors. And of course there's six of those. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the body, and the mind. I used to think that guarding the sense doors was kind of a beginner's practice. What I'm finding out is that it's a really important practice throughout the path. So you might want to give it some attention. We use our sense doors to navigate the world around us. They help us stay out of danger, and they help us take care of ourselves and the people we love, and they help us enjoy life. Um, There's nothing intrinsically wrong with our senses. We need them. We rely on them, and we want them to operate well. It's just that we want to be mindful of what they're doing so that we can pick and choose which senses uh, that we want to follow or which objects we want to let in the sense doors. That's really a better way to say it. So can we be mindful of the sensory input that we like, and sense desires are usually sensory input that we like, can we be mindful of the ones we like without immediately having to have it or have more of it before we... You know, check the box. Is this good for us? Will this serve us? Is it harmful? This is guarding the sense doors. Not 
getting carried away with sense desire before we've determined whether it serves us in a wholesome way. Okay, so that's the third, guarding the sense doors. And the fourth is... uh, to is moderation in eating to help seclude us from sense desires. It can be just a practice in guarding the sense doors, actually, moderation in eating, because this is one of the sense doors. And these are one of the sense doors, the eyes and the nose. So we smell food, we see food, we taste food. So it's an exercise in guarding the sense doors, but actually it's a recommendation as an antidote in and of itself, moderation in eating. Um, And food is the biggest uh, attraction on this retreat uh, until you get in the hindrances, uh, the, the jhanas. So you might find yourself fantasizing about food. Uh, which can become a hindrance if it keeps you out of concentration. If this is an issue for you, try moderating your food intake. Okay, so that's one, two, three, and four. And then five and six, the final two, are to have noble friends and to have noble conversation. And I'm going to postpone discussing that until the end of the talk. Let's just mark that. Okay, so that's how to be secluded from sense desires. Learn the unattractive, which is impermanence. Devote yourself to meditating on the unattractive. Guard the sense doors. Moderation and eating. Noble friends and noble conversation. Okay, what about the, uh, the next hindrance, which is aversion? If, if the hindrance of sense desire is the wanting mind, the second hindrance of aversion is the pushing away mind or the not wanting mind. Thoughts of aversion include fear, jealousy, anger, Resentment, ill will, outrage, hatred, and it's mild irritation, disappointment, annoyance. The Buddha said that becoming overcome with aversion is like looking into a bowl of water that is boiling and bubbling. It's hot and unruly. And if we looked into the bowl to see our reflection, we wouldn't be able to because our clear seeing would be hindered. In the same way, when our mind is possessed by aversion, it's a hindrance. The Buddha also compared aversion to being sick. When we're sick, we're hot, we don't feel well, and we can't think straight. Likewise, when we're caught up in aversion, we're hot, we don't feel well, and we can't think straight. So the commentaries list the six things as antidotes to deal with uh, all these different kinds of aversion. And as you might guess, the very first one is 
learning how to meditate on metta. So if anger comes up or ill will or irritation and you can't let it go easily, stop your access method and switch to metta. And you definitely don't have to do it for the person you're angry at. Do it, do it for yourself. I would recommend that. But you can do it for a friend or a teacher or a pet. It doesn't matter. The metta you do will get you out of an angry mind state and put you in a wholesome one. And do it until the hindrance is gone. And then switch back to your access method. Okay, so the first one for dealing with aversion is to learn how to meditate on on, um, loving-kindness, metta. And the second one is um, to devote yourself to meditating on metta, which we're doing at night, and we did the other morning on self-metta. And you've got a five-minute homework assignment every day to at least do that much of self-metta. I hope you're remembering to do that. And I hope you'll find it so wonderful that you'll double it and triple it. So learning to meditate on metta and devoting yourself to meditating on metta. Those are the first two antidotes for aversion. The third antidote listed in the commentaries is to remember that you're the owner of your karma. Our anger has consequences. It might put you in a bad mood for an hour or more. It might affect other people you care about. It'll definitely keep you from access concentration. That's a karmic consequence of aversion. Or worse, you might do or say something you later regret. So remember that you're the owner of your karma. That's something to keep in mind when you're in a state of aversion as a hindrance. And the fourth uh, thing to do is to frequently reflect on the fact that you're the owner of your karma. And we're going to be doing that tomorrow morning because we're going to go through the five daily reflections. And one of them is on karma. And I'm going to give you a homework assignment with regard to those five daily reflections. So keep that in mind that although you might not want to do the one on karma, because I'm going to let you pick whichever one you want to do for a homework assignment, it's a great antidote for aversion. Frequently reflecting on the fact that you're the owner of your karma. And one of the uh, suggested reflections that the commentaries give uh, for reflecting on the fact that you're the owner of your karma is... um, this reflection that I'll read to you. 
about what good is anger anyway? What can you do with it anyway? So you might as well let it go. But this is how the reflection goes. Being angry with another person, what can you do to him? Can you destroy his virtue and other good qualities? You have come to your present state of anger by your own karma and will go forward according to your own karma. Anger towards another is just as if you wishing to hit the other person, pick up um, some glowing coals to do it with, or a heated um, iron rod, or even excrement. That's what, car- that's what anger will do for you. And in the same way, the commentary goes on to say, if the other person is angry at you, what can he do to you? Can he destroy your virtue and your other good qualities? He too has come to his present state of anger by his own karma and will go forward according to it. Like an unaccepted gift or like a handful of dirt thrown against the wind, his anger will fall back on his head if you don't accept it. So that's reflection on being the owner of your karma. And the fifth and sixth things to do uh, to counteract aversion are to have noble friends and noble conversation. Again, which I'll defer to the end of the talk. So those are the six things to do in response to aversion. Learn how to meditate on loving kindness. Devote yourself to it. Remember you're the owner of your karma. Frequently reflect on the fact that you're the owner of your karma and noble friends and noble conversation. The third hindrance, sloth and torpor. Sloth is sluggishness of mind, like sinking mind. And torpor is tiredness in the body. Fatigue. The Buddha said that being overcome with sloth and torpor is like looking into a bowl of water that is covered with algae and slime. It's so unattractive that we don't really even want to look at it. Right? when we're in sloth and torpor, it's, it too is so unattractive that we don't even really want to look at it. We kind of just go with the sloth and torpor whether that, rather than being present to it. But, and if we were to try to look into the bowl of algae and slime to see our reflection, we wouldn't be able to, of course, And in the same way, when our awareness is overcome with sloth and torpor, it's a hindrance to our concentration. And the Buddha also compared sloth and torpor to being locked up in a prison. If we were a prisoner, we wouldn't be able to do what we wanted or be with whom we wanted. We would miss out on the good things in life. And it's just so when we're experiencing sloth and torpor, 
we miss out on the spiritual life. And the commentaries list six things to do to counteract sloth and torpor. The first one is over um, is understanding that overeating is a cause of sloth and torpor. So whether it's the sinking mind or tiredness in the body, overeating is a cause. So if this is an issue, you might want to think about uh, experimenting with eating less food and see if that increases your energy. Another antidote is to change your body posture if you have sloth and torpor. So as I mentioned um, the other day, uh, I may not have mentioned, but you can stand up, mindfully stand up in place uh, in the retreat. Very mindfully, just push your body up, go vertical, bend your knees a little bit so they don't get locked up and you don't fall over. Um, and just be very mindful of the subtle mu- uh, movements of the muscles in your legs as you stand. And that can rouse energy. So you kind of switch your attention from the breath while you're standing to the subtle movement of the leg muscles. So um, understanding that overeating is a cause of sloth and torpor, changing bodily posture can help with sloth and torpor, attention to the perception of light, which means open your eyes and look for some light somewhere. That can kind of wake you up. The fourth one is live in open air. So I think that's more walking meditation. Uh, It's my understanding in uh, Asian countries, a lot of the monks who live in kutis have a walking uh, path right outside their kuti. Um, maybe in, um, I don't know if it's concrete or what, but it's it's a walking path that's just long enough that they can maintain their mindfulness in, and it's a real important part of their practice. So it can also help with sloth and torpor walking meditation. All right, so that's sloth and torpor. And the fifth and sixth are noble friends and noble conversation. Let me just say a little bit more. Um, And I may have said this the other day. Did I talk about pulling your ears and pinching your cheeks? Okay, good. Yeah. Oh, and then if, if you're tired in the body and you try these things and they're not working, then just take a nap. We're still at the beginning of the retreat, and tiredness is very common at the beginning of the retreat. So if, if, if you're tired, just sleep until you feel like you've had enough, and then uh, come back and see if the sloth and torpor is better. With regard to sinking mind, let me say this. I haven't, haven't read this anywhere, but my experience has shown me that when I have a sinking mind, the best thing I can do for it is to be mindful of the sinking mind. It takes a lot of energy to do that because when my mind is sinking, I'm like, the last thing I want to do is be mindful of anything, let alone it. 
But if I can muster my energy just enough to wrap my mindfulness around the sinking mind, all of a sudden it's, it's not a problem. So I recommend that. Okay, that's sloth and torpor. The hindrance of restlessness and remorse. Restlessness can be physical or mental. And remorse, of course, is just mental. Restlessness includes when you can't sit still or when you're distracted a lot or agitated. Restlessness is not fully uprooted until the final stage of enlightenment. So don't be too hard on yourself if you're getting distracted a lot. Uh, I've heard on one retreat, a yogi got so agitated about the noise from an airplane flying overhead the retreat center that he left a note for the teacher to please call the airport to have them reroute the airplanes away from the retreat center because the noise was bothering his meditation. That is a restless mind. Remorse. Remorse is a gnawing and lingering unease from a sense of guilt for past wrongs. Contrast that with a sense of healthy regret. We can experience healthy regret for past wrongs without beating ourselves up. And then return to the breath. In Pema Chodron's book, No Time to Lose, she speaks about the difference between remorse and healthy regret. She says that in reviewing one's life, we inevitably find we have some regrets. We've all said or done things that we wish we hadn't. Yet this should not mean that we feel doomed. By simply acknowledging what we've done, we interrupt the ignorance that sustains habitual patterns. By simply acknowledging what we've done, we interrupt the ignorance that sustains habitual patterns. Thus, instead of sabotaging our future happiness with remorse, we cultivate a relaxed and flexible mind that has a healthy regret for wrongs committed, and then we move on. So in short, remorse is an unnecessary waste of energy. And just like restlessness, it keeps us from concentrating the mind. The Buddha said that being overcome with restlessness and remorse is like looking into a bowl of water ruffled by the wind. The water, just like the mind, is not very calm. If we looked into the bowl to see our reflection, our clear seeing would be hindered. In the same way, when our mind is possessed and overcome by restlessness and remorse, it is a hindrance. And the Buddha also compared restlessness and remorse to being a slave. 
A slave must do what the master demands, not what the slave wants to do. In the commentaries, list six things to help us abandon restlessness and remorse. The first recommendation is knowledge of the Buddhist scriptures, which you'll get a lot of on this retreat. Um, ask questions about them, which I hope you'll do. And the third thing is skill in the Vinaya, which for us means practicing and keeping the precepts. And the fourth thing is association with senior monks. In other words, it's good to hang out with people who know the Dharma. And the fifth and sixth things are noble friends and noble conversation. Okay, so that's the hindrance of of, um, restlessness and remorse. The final hindrance is skeptical doubt. And here we're contrasting skeptical doubt with healthy doubt. Healthy doubt is being unsure about something, but without immediately discounting it until we know more. So we kind of put our opinion on hold. The kind of doubt that is a hindrance is skeptical doubt. And it can be doubt about the Buddha. You know, did he really live? Uh, Doubt in the Dharma. I doubt this is relevant today. Doubt about the Sangha. Well, even if the Buddha got enlightened, I, I doubt anybody else has since then. You can also have doubt in the teacher, the teachings, the techniques. The worst skeptical doubt is self-doubt. I can't do this. Everyone else can but me. It's too hard. Well, it is difficult what we're doing, but it's worth the effort. The results are slow to come, but the rewards are immense, as I hope you'll discover. The Buddha said that being overcome with skeptical doubt is like looking into a bowl of water stirred up with mud. You can't see things clearly when you have skeptical doubt. And it becomes a hindrance. And the Buddha also compared skeptical doubt to the kind of doubt one would have traveling on a road through a desolate country and carrying valuables. Traveling in a desolate road, carrying valuables. Uh, You would be constantly second-guessing your route. Would it be better and safer to go down that road, or should I stay here and cross over there? Maybe I should go in a different direction altogether. There is more stopping and starting than actual progress when you have this kind of skeptical doubt. It can be the same on the spiritual path. Suppose we start out doing Vipassana, but we find it dull compared to what the Tibetans are doing. So we say, let's give that a try. After all, um, I deserve to be entertained. But eventually we get bored with the pageantry. Okay, how about Zen? I like gardens. 
But wait, they hit you with a stick. More stopping and starting than actual progress. We need to follow one spiritual path for a period of time before we investigate other paths. Maybe five years. If you know a path is not for you sooner than that, of course, quit. But if it's just skeptical doubt and you're continually looking for another path, maybe it's a red flag that you should settle on one for a period of time. And the commentaries list six things to develop to abandon skeptical doubt. And they're very similar to the six things that were just mentioned for the hindrance of restlessness and remorse. Namely, learn the Dharma, ask questions, the skill in the Vinaya, which means learning the precepts and keeping them. The fourth one is resolve to stay on with the path long enough to see where it goes. And the fifth and sixth are noble friends and noble conversation. So let me address noble friends and noble conversation. The Buddha's cousin and longtime attendant, Ananda, was having a discussion with another monk, according to a sutta, and they were inquiring into what the most important aspect of the path is. Ananda said that having noble friends and noble conversation were the most important part of the path, maybe even half of the holy life. And the other monk said, that meditation was the most important part of the path. Well, to resolve their disagreement, Ananda went to the Buddha and asked him, Venerable Sir, aren't noble friendship and noble conversation half of the holy life? And the Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda. Noble friendship and noble conversation are the whole of the holy life. The Buddha went on to say that when a person has noble friends and noble conversation, he can be expected to develop and pursue the noble eightfold path. And then the Buddha went on to say, it is in dependence on me as an admirable friend that being subject to suffering have gained release from it. So, this means not only associating with good people, but also learning from them and emulating their good qualities. And you can be noble fr- a noble friend to someone, too. So look for people that you might not otherwise adopt as a friend who are noble. And when someone picks you out to be a noble friend, uh, consider, consider doing that. All right. So to recap, with sense desire, learn the impermanent nature of objects of your desire, the impermanent nature of desire itself, and the impermanent nature of the fleeting nature of our satisfaction with the objects once obtained. And devote yourself to meditating on impermanence. When aversion arises, practice loving kindness for both others and yourself, and devote yourself to practicing loving kindness and frequently reflect on your karma. With slop and torpor, try mindfulness, especially with the sinking mind 
and see if overeating may be a cause. And with restlessness or doubt, listen to the Dharma talks and ask questions. The Buddha said that when these five hindrances have been abandoned, one experiences that as freedom from debt, becoming healthy, release from prison, freedom from slavery, and arriving in a, in a land of safety. So, all right. And then, of course, the sutta on the jhanas. And thus secluded from sense desires and unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.